Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and we guys, we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. So far in our series on Title IX, we have focused on several key moments in the Title IX movement, everything from the origin story of its legislation through to the element of play days and their structure, to Helen Onsen, Helen Stevens, uh, and various traveling teams throughout the state of Missouri and the Midwest, and on down to Dr. Mary Jo Wynn and her influential career at Southwest Missouri State University, better known today as Missouri State University. For the installment today, I wanted to focus a little bit in on a number of collections housed at the State Historical Society of Missouri that really look at the study of sports and recreation athletics across the entire state. These are wide-ranging collections, everything from personal papers to organizational records. And I was struck by a number of conversations in the Missouri Sports and Recreation Oral History Project that discussed various elements of recreation, uh, organized play, and really structure when it came to athletics and recreation that was far beyond simply what was offered at the school, high school, and, and college level. And one particular example of this was from Pat Cologne, uh, a legendary basketball player from Cape Girardeau who played at Southeast Missouri State University in the late 1980s, who spoke about her experiences at the local playground, you know, in the neighborhood, um, and really touching on how much that impacted her very life. Literally hung around and played basketball with my brother. That's what I did. Um, so I always did that. I, I mean, even as I got older, I started playing basketball probably, ooh, earliest I can remember was probably about eight or nine. And back then, um, the city had these, um, I guess you could call them summer programs that you could um, go and enroll in and you could do basketball, you could do tennis, um, you know, you can do crafts. It was just different things to keep kids busy. Um, so I always got involved in playing basketball. That, that was, that's something I loved. I, I figured out I was good at it, so I kept doing it. Um, my brothers kept, you know, cheering me on. Yeah, 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 keep doing it. So I played summer leagues. I did church leagues. Uh, anything that dealt with a basketball, I would try. Um, the older I got, I got into softball. Was pretty good at softball too, but I loved basketball. Um, so that's what I did. Sports kind of became my life. I did okay in school. You know, we weren't allowed to come home with C's and D's. I just wasn't going to, you know, cut it with my parents. So, you know, as long as you maintain to be average, you were okay. You can continue in sports and, you know, that way. So that's what we did. May Green was kind of the the place that I learned to to play my best. I mean, we get up Saturday mornings, 
do your chores. First thing you did, you went outside, you had the ball in your hand, you played basketball, you had other people from other neighborhoods would come over. That was the big place to play ball. You had two goals. You know, you had the big, what they call the big person or the big guy's goal. That's where all the big boys played. That was a serious play. And then the second goal was, you know, you could kind of warm up on or, you know, little kids played at that one is what they called it. You know, to play at the big boys, you you know, me being the only girl, I was told there was no crying. Um, if you fell down, scraped your knee because it was on concrete, you couldn't cry. Throw some dirt on it if you were bleeding and you keep playing. So I guess I learned my meanness from, from playing basketball with the guys. One of the first major themes that really emerged when I looked over the collections of the Historical Society related to recreation and athletics uh, centered on the role of physical educators. And we've certainly seen that throughout the course of the series. Uh, physical educators who have been involved in the implementation of Title IX and who have really looked at various ways to incorporate new forms of recreation athletics um, into the classroom and into the uh, competitive elements of play. One of the major individuals to contribute to the Historical Society's collections on the subject matter is Dr. Kathleen Kinderfather. Uh, who is a professor of physical education at Harris Stowe State University and was a member of the Governor's Council of, on Physical Fitness and later one of the founding members of the Missouri Foundation for Health, Fitness, and Sport. She also assists in the establishment of the Show Me State Games. In addition to her personal papers, she was also heavily involved in oral history interviews regarding uh, the Women's Physical Education Club of St. Louis and the surrounding area and graciously donated oral histories conducted in the 1970s revolving physical educators and their views on the changing landscape of physical education and higher education in the state of Missouri. It, it really did affect me a lot. Then, when the man came in the second year, and he took half and I took half, they said, okay, fourth, fifth, and sixth grades, the woman will take all the girls and the man will take all the boys. And I protested. I said, I'd rather have both boys and girls. I honestly would. And they said, nope. This is the way it is. So all of Hazelwood, and Hazelwood, you know, is a huge school mm -hmm. system, had the man take the boys, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and the woman take the girls, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Both of us took both boys and girls, first, second, third, mm -hmm. and also the kindergartens, because we were working with mm -hmm. kindergartens. Title IX came in. First year, I said to our supervisor, are we going to put the girls and boys together this year on fourth, fifth, and sixth grade? He said, Oh, I don't think so. He said, I don't think Title IX means that. I said, I've been reading Title IX. I said, yes, I think that's what it means. <laughs> Didn't get anywhere. The following year, oh, yes, Title IX does mean <laughs> the boys and girls go together. All of a sudden, we were both teaching both. Again, so Title IX did make, you know, mm -hmm. that much difference. Okay, and now, the uh, sports program of Horsebury's, uh, uh, I think that... Uh, in the very beginning, uh, soccer wasn't that well received, and now uh, it seems to me it's one of the best for mm -hmm. elementary kids. Uh, gone through all kinds of phases of games, and uh, although they're basically the same, there's always a little different uh, uh, twist to them. It and does seem that they, uh, some things are in and some things are out. I know the gymnastic program was out, and then it came in. Well, the gymnastic Slowly. program, when I was in school as an undergraduate, was just beginning to get a little 
at least it was included in our program, but none of us were enthusiastic about it. We did it because it was required. And then for a good long time, that was way back in 28 when I got my BS, and I think it went for, oh, within the last 10 years uh, at the very most, uh, has it become popular. Well, that's what I think because it was out. When I was uh, in your, school. your equipment was even pushed to the storerooms and finally pitched. Absolutely. The uh, teachers would say to us when we wanted to play with that equipment, mm -hmm. oh, that's out of style, you mm -hmm. know. And we couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden, now about 10 years ago, the, my the, Then, of goodness. course, uh, you were spending a good part of your budget on, on apparatus. And I bet you any money, uh, if it were not for the... Um, the motivation of the Olympics, we would not have the strong program we have now. I think it's the I Olympics that have brought right. in the, um, mm -hmm. uh, because in many, many ways, apparatus uh, does not lend itself to the teaching that you get in elementary schools. Yeah, the, if you go at all with it, it's it's really very skilled and very difficult. Well, and what's more, it's hard to... And it, and it doesn't lend itself to the masses you have to handle, but the motivation of, um, of the Olympics has brought it along. What? Additionally, a number of organizations have also donated the records to the Historical Society over the time, including the Missouri Athletic Trainers Association, Missouri Park and Recreation Association, Missouri Society for Health and Physical Educators. These records relate to not only organizational minutes and membership lists, but also how these various organizations have dealt with a number of key subject matters over the course of their organizational history, many of them going back uh, to the early period of the 20th century. Additionally, the subject matter of outdoor camps has come up time and time again, and something that is uniquely interesting in the subject matter. The Historical Society not only has programs um, and information related to organizations like the Campfire Girls and the Boys and Girls Clubs uh, in Missouri, but also records of the YMCA and the YWCA, uh, and even community center records as well. You know, some of the big ones include you know, the Matthews Dickey Boys and Girls Club of St. Louis, the University YMCA and YWCA, the YMCA records of Greater Kansas City, and then two very interesting collections I want to highlight here briefly. The Pine Street branch of the YMCA, which was founded in St. Louis in 1919 and soon developed a, a pretty strong connection to the larger community uh, in St. Louis. It was a historically black YMCA chapter uh, when many of the YMCA chapters were segregated, and its impact is influential. Uh, if you were to read uh, the St. Louis Argus or even St. Louis American for a period of time in the early to mid-20th century, you would find numerous references to Pine Street YMCA activities, um, including uh, a very influential camp by the name of Camp Rivercliff, which was operated near the town of Bourbon, Missouri. Uh, this camp has started in the early 1920s and ran into the 1950s. It was one of the first camps that really offered rural recreational opportunities for African-American children, initially serving boys at first, but later transitioning over to boys and girls and co-ed uh, camping opportunities as well. And during the Great Depression, as finances got tight uh, for the camp, it implemented a large, what was called the Y Circus in parts of St. Louis that began as a, a night or two nights of entertainment with local performers, 
and eventually by by the end of its run branched out to being almost a week-long series of festivities that brought in numerous large-name performers, including Nat King Cole, or Eartha Kitt, um, just to name a few. In addition to the Pine Street YMCA, there was also the Phyllis Wheatley branch of the YWCA. Uh, the Phyllis Wheatley branch was also influential in starting its own camp uh, in the 1930s, Camp uh, Derricott, which was located just a little bit northwest of St. Louis uh, in what is today Quiver River State Park in Lincoln County. Uh, it was founded by the, the branch in an effort to expand outdoor activities for African-American girls and for women um, in an era when they had even fewer opportunities than their male counterparts. It was named for Juliet Derricott, who was an African-American educator who had worked for the YWCA before becoming the Dean of Women at Fisk University um, prior to her passing in 1931. The camp ran from 1939 all the way up into the 1980s. As I previously mentioned, I feel that these collections are, are, are significant, not only in the materials that they hold, but also for their role in telling the story of sports and recreation in the state of Missouri. From local papers to organizational records, these histories, these minutes, these records speak to the evolution of opportunity, both limited as well as expanded throughout the course of the 20th century, and speak to a Missouri that many people have forgotten, the story behind the scenes in many ways. So as we reflect, as we go on this Title IX series about the legacy of Title IX, it's important to remember the records that have been kept enable us to tell the story of Title IX in Missouri. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.